Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, starting at 1.31 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 152nd episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Laura London and Jen Zart, and we're going to be reviewing Liz Green's new book titled Young Studies in Astrology, Prophecy, Magic, and the Qualities of Time. Uh, hey, Laura and Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hey, all right. I am excited. I'm both excited and nervous about this discussion because this is a, this is an important book. And, um, so my, my previous plan is like I had hoped to, um, interview Liz Green about it to talk to her about it directly and ans- ask some questions, but she actually got a lot of interview inquiries. And as a result of that, there were so many inquiries that she just decided to be fair not to do any of them, which I completely respect. Um, but I still wanted to have a discussion about this book because it seems like a really important landmark piece of astrological scholarship. And I wanted to talk to the, the two of you because I think both of you and, and all three of us as a team have really interesting and unique backgrounds that bring something useful to this discussion. So first, I want to start with you, Laura. You are the host of a podcast that you've been doing for a few years now titled Speaking of Young, which is actually a podcast that focuses on Young's life and work, right? Yes. Yes. It's interviews with Jungian analysts. I That's the focus of it is Jungian analysts, people who are certified, um, not psychologists who've dabbled in Jung, but people who have diplomas in analytical psychology, which is the technical name of Jung's school of psychology. And yeah, so actually, I have to say that your podcast was a huge inspiration for me, the astrology podcast, I listened to it, and I love it. And um, you were very helpful also in helping me set up my podcast because I had a lot of questions. And um, I'm always going to be grateful to you for that. You always were right there answering my emails. And so thank you for that. Awesome. Yeah, I remember when you were getting started and just like, uh, you know, answering a few questions about what mic I was using and stuff. And then I've always been really excited to see your progress with your podcast over the past few years since then and how much it's grown and become popular. So the URL where people can access it is, what, what is it again? It's speaking of Jung, and that's J-U-N-G dot com. Okay, got it. So people can find that on, on iTunes or at that URL or other podcasting sites. Yes. Uh, and we'll talk more about that again later. And so I wanted to talk to you. So Laura has the background in Jung and in uh, modern psychology and in the specific school of psychology that Jung founded. And then, Jen, your background, we we talked um, in December when you were on the, the podcast for the first time, and we talked about your work on basically astrology in Germany in the early 20th century. And you have a really strong background in, in the history of early modern astrology or, or you know, early 20th century astrology. But you've also, in the past, through your work at the Sophia Center in the UK, you've actually had some interactions with Liz Green, right? Yep. I have worked with her on publishing her doctoral thesis as 
her book Magi and Magadim, and also the two anthologies, Sky and Symbol and Astrologies. Okay, brilliant. So it's like you bring a really unique um, and useful perspective to this as well, since you know the that episode that we did um, where we were talking about Elizabeth Eberton in December. We're talking about essentially the same period, or there's a large period of overlap in terms of her, the period where she was alive and doing astrology and the cultural context of astrology in Germany during that time period in the early 20th century, and the period that that Jung was alive and doing his work, basically, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time researching this time period and also Jung's collected works. Um, I found out there's a digital version now, which would have made my work a lot easier back then, but um, I, I got them all out and had them splayed out on my living room floor for months trying to find a lot of what we end up finding in this book in certain respects at the beginning. So reading this was a sort of nice flashback to my early graduate days. And I, in the end, chose not to talk about Jung in my doctoral thesis because I wanted to foreground other characters that were using astrology at that time. Sure. Part of your, your program was partially to highlight some some astrologers that were notable and important at the time, but weren't necessarily as well known later in the century or, or in co- in current times, contemporary times, as they they might otherwise be. Yeah, yeah. There was a way of um, trying to go back and culture give some cultural context to people who had been overlooked because they weren't a part of scholarly narratives that have taken place um, for other purposes, like the Jung narrative or the Nazi narrative. There are a few things where. Um, there were just many interesting people doing things, so I wanted to shed light on those lesser-known figures. Sure, definitely. All right. So over the past week, basically, all three of us have, have read the book. I actually was like reading it all the way up until the last minute, until this um, coffee shop I was reading at was like it was like ten minutes from close last night, and I read the last sentence of the book, and I did whatever the book equivalent is of like spiking a football once I had, had finished actually reading it successfully because I didn't think <laughs> I did not know if I was going to make it in time. Did you guys make it through the entire entire book? It's been a slog, yeah. The the font size, just to put a note on that, was I think I need to get a massage after reading this book. Yeah, I did notice that. It's very, very small Bembo font. I was wondering why there was only about 188 pages in it. And then there's this huge bibliography in the back. It's like 30 pages, just the bibliography, but the font is tiny. And well, there's um, a story about that actually, in terms oh, of production me. history. Um, when I was working with Liz in 2012, getting her doctoral thesis into print, and I first laid it out, it's about the Kabbalah and um, sort of a, the Jewish Kabbalah in, in British occultism. And it came to 555 pages. And then for the next six years, I've seen that number everywhere. I keep seeing it oh. on receipts, license plates, you name it. And then it has an 85 plus page bibliography, which then eventually pushed it up to like with the index, I think 574 pages. So when I saw this size font, I was like, the publisher is probably doing this because they don't necessarily want to print a 400 page book, but this is basically a 400 page book. Mm. Right. And and it's a very, so this is not a typical astrology book. I mean, I guess I should say that from the outset since we're our audience is typically or primarily contemporary astrologers and practitioners of astrology for the astrology podcast. So this is a piece of astrological scholarship and and the basic premise like I was trying to summarize this book in my mind and in my notes the other day 
And the premise of the book is basically that one of the most prominent astrologers of the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, Liz Green, became. she went back to school and became an academic or um, took her background in astrology, but moved into academia and learned all of the necessary skills in order to do hardcore uh, academic scholarship and historical research. She became good enough and and her the quality of her work was good enough and her background credentials were good enough that she was eventually given access to Young's personal archives by his family and wrote basically one of the first complete or, or sizable treatments of Young's actual views on astrology and not just his and his sources and basically where um, his his views on astrology came from and the extent to which they influenced his work in in one of the most sort of notable and, and one of the first presentations of that sort of topic in modern times. So the book is really notable from that standpoint. There's like a few different angles that you could approach it from in terms of why it's notable. Maybe one of the starting points or one of the things we should start with is just explaining who Liz Green is or or why I would say that she's one of the most notable astrologers in the late 20th and early 21st century. Does either of you feel competent tackle, tackling that, or or how would you approach that? Well, I've never met her, um, so I would defer to Jen. I just, I, I've, I just would like to say that um, there was always this air of mystique around her because back when I started my study of Jung, um, when I was in analysis and. I started studying astrology soon after. Liz Green was what was then, everybody would say she's the only astrologer out there who's also a Jungian analyst. And I don't know if that was true at the time, back in the 90s, maybe it was, but I know that I've already interviewed three of the Jungian analysts on my podcasts who are also practicing astrologers, Christina Becker, Frith Luton, and Monica Wickman. So there are Jungian analysts out there who are also astrologers, but for such a long time, she was the only one. And so I did some background. I just know some basic facts about her. Like I said, I've never met her, um, but she's American. Uh, she was born in New Jersey, and then she relocated to the UK, and then she lived for a time in Zurich. And what I thought was interesting, uh, I was talking to a Jungian analyst that I know in Toronto who she's also an astrologer and she learned astrology directly from Liz Green in Zurich because she trained to become a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute in Zurich. And she said that Liz Green was living in Kusnacht, which is the kind of suburb of Zurich where Jung's family home is and where the Jung Institute relocated to because the Jung Institute used to be in downtown Zurich and now it's in Kusnacht on the lake. Um, so I guess she's back living in the UK now and she's in her early 70s and she got her diploma way back in 1980, her diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst. Um, and I guess she has two PhDs and she's written like 30 books and Right. I mean, that's actually very a very important impressive. point because mm -hmm. that's what most astrologers know her from is her her books because she's been a, a prolific writer. And I think you 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 actually put in our notes like a collection of titles, and it's just like this really yeah. long mm 
list of of books that she's either written herself or or co-wrote especially in sort of prior to her diving into academia over the past decade or decade and a half she had already had this like long career as an astrologer and written dozens of books at that point in the astrological community yeah and um what what i thought was interesting um about her is that she was given access to Jung's personal archives. That is what blew me away when I found out about this book. And another interesting thing, and I don't know if you mentioned that this is a two-volume set. We're no, just that's, be a, that's a good point. Yeah, we're just going to be talking about the first volume today and um, Jung's studies in astrology. And what was I saying? That in in the beginning, in the acknowledgments, she really only acknowledges two people. One is Sanusham Dasani, who I have a lot to say about. And the other is Jung's grandson, Andreas Jung, and his wife, Vreni, who live in that house, the Jung family home in Kusnacht, where Jung's library is, you know, his personal collection of books. I mean, they built that house in, I think, 1906. They moved into that house, or maybe it was before I have that here. Um, So... He lived there for a long time. He raised all his children there, and then his his grandchildren lived there. And the fact that Liz Green was allowed access and thanks Jung's grandson and his wife for not only allowing her access to his personal archive and his his home library, but also she said in in the support of the writing of this book. And I just was blown away by that because. They are such a private family. I mean, it took 95 years after the writing of the Red Book for that to get published. And Sanu Shamdasani is the editor of the Red Book, and I know I'm jumping ahead here. So what was your question? <laughs> sure. So just, no, I mean, I think one of the points you made that is really important. So this is what just came out over the past month or so. It's actually two books. So the first book is volume one. It's titled Young's Studies in Astrology, Prophecy, Magic, and the Qualities of Time. And that's basically volume one. And that's what we're going to be talking about today because we realized that trying to deal with both volumes was going to be too much and they're uh, pretty radically different in their focus. So volume one is largely focused on Young, what his background in astrology is, uh, and and especially the astrological and philosophical and sometimes esoteric currents that influenced Jung. And she basically tries to trace the influence of different these different threads from books that Jung was reading. And, and one of the ways she does that is that she had access to his private library and his private notes. Um, so she tries to use that in order to draw conclusions about you know, which authors were influencing Jung and which authors Jung was reading and either incorporating into his thought or using to sometimes contrast with with things that he didn't agree with. So that's volume one, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Volume two of this, these two books is titled The Astrological Wor- World of Jung's Liber Novus, Diamonds, Gods, and the Planetary Journey. And this book is primarily a treatment of the ways in which astrology relates to or or influenced the writing of his book known as the Red Book or the Liber Novus. 
And that's something that we can talk about a little bit later. But that seemed like we needed to do this episode on volume one first and have this discussion. And then at some later date, I'm hoping to do a sort of separate episode on the Red Book and uh, volume two of Liz's work here. But maybe we can let's let's put that discussion of the Red Book off a little bit, just because that's a whole other thing that we will have to touch on at some point. But I don't want to go, go too far into it too early. Yeah. So you, you had ahead. also said, um, you know, for most of her career as an astrologer, Liz has contributed so much to in- integrating Jung's work into a type of astrology, and in this transition into becoming a scholar, she's become the perfect person in the world to have access to Jung's archives and to be able to write this book. And I think that's an amazing thing to take that step and to actually produce these two volumes together. It's quite a tour de force and um, a model to follow, I think, as well, when we think about our legacy, our heritage, our lineage of various kinds of astrology and going into archives and producing this kind of excellence. Right. I mean, there's something incredibly inspiring and interesting about this because she, like you said, she she became one of the most prominent astrologers in the late 20th century because she was like the one of, if not the leading psychological astrologer and one of the leading proponents for not reinterpreting, but but interpreting astrology through the lens of psychology and especially through the lens of Jungian psychology. And although other Western astrologers had been incorporating elements of Jung into their astrology or like using and appropriating pieces of Jung as early as like 1936 with with Rudyard's work, The Astrology of Personality, um, it's only really in the in the 1960s and 70s and 80s when you get this this other generation of astrologers that came in around that time that um the the full birth of like a purely psychological astrology took place and and Liz Green is certainly one of the primary proponents of that and her output during during that time period in the 1960s and 70s and 80s was really staggering in terms of the books that she published and the extent to which she was successful in in influencing the astrological community in that way so i mean some of the titles she published were like you know, Saturn, a new look at an old devil, her huge book on Neptune, uh, the astrology of fate was another major one that that was pretty influential. She also wrote books with other authors like Stephen Arroyo. Her contra- her con- uh, not contributions, but her working with Howard Sisportis uh, produced some amazing volumes on like the luminaries, the dynamics of the unconscious. And other topics, and she also uh, did some work on the tarot. So she wrote that book with Juliet Sherman Burke, titled "The Mythic Journey" or or the the new the Mythic Tarot. I think is was the title of that. I, I actually got that deck, or it was one of my earliest ones. Oh wow! So do I. <laughs> you you have that one too? Yeah, yeah I like, do. And I got the workbook with it. Right, which oh, is nice. just like amazingly illustrated. So. But the point is, or part of the narrative I'm trying to create is Liz Green was the preeminent psychological astrologer for the last few decades of the 20th century. But then what's interesting about her and about this story and what this book represents is that she was part of like a movement in astrology that started happening in the 
late 20th century and early 21st century, like the 1990s and 2000s, where some some of the leading astrologers in the astrological community wanted to start making inroads in academia and started getting the idea that it was important for astrologers to be and for astrology to be more well represented in academic discussions of different fields because they were currently underrepresented. And they basically realized that the academics themselves were not necessarily going to learn astrology, or in some instances when they did, they still did not treat the subject. Um, even in a historical context, they would not necessarily always treat the subject with um, the necessary care and diligence that it that it deserved. And so instead, it would be best if astrologers would go back to school and sometimes learn the necessary tools and the sort of tricks of the trade and necessary skills in order to be able to talk about astrology in an academic context, whether that's in a historical context or, or a sociological context or even a potentially a psychological context, but that astrologers needed to go back to school and get those degrees and then they could have discussions about astrology in that area. And there were a number of astrologers that actually did this. So like Rob Hand went back to school to get a PhD and his PhD thesis was on Guido Bonatti in like 12th or 13th century medieval astrology. Demetra George went back to school for classics and got a master's degree. Uh, Nick Campion went back and finished his PhD in the, the early to mid-2000s. Dorian Greenbaum went back and got her PhD and did a dissertation on the, the daimon or the guardian spirit in Hellenistic astrology. There was just a, a ton of astrologer, not not a ton. I mean, I don't want to overplay that, but it was definitely part of a broader movement that it seems like a lot of prominent astrologers got into in the late twentieth and early twenty first century. And Liz Green's an interesting figure because, from the perspective of the astrological community, it's almost like she had this huge output for a few decades of astrology books, but then you haven't heard as much about her over the past decade or so. And that's because she's also one of those people that went back to school and she's been focusing on doing academic research and scholarship over the course of the past decade. But she's and still been prolific. There's a lot of articles in Culture and Cosmos and contributions to chapters and edited volumes through Sophia Center Press. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't mean to say that she's not. It's just that she's doing it in a different area that that most normal astrologers, it's like, you know, she's not writing relationships and how to survive them she's writing now she's writing mm. you know what was the title of her dissertation it was like the kabbalah in uh, british occultism from yeah. 1860 to 1940 yeah it's like she's yeah. writing hardcore academic scholarship at this point and she's taking her background in astrology and her familiarity with astrological sources and symbolism and everything else and she's bringing that to bear on basically reconstructing things about the history of astrology and the history of Western thought where astrology is relevant and and doing really important and really interesting his historical uh, scholarship in that context at this point. And that's and this probably, I mean, one of the things I would say is that this publication actually marks probably the culmination of that in some sense. I mean, I, I would think for her, at least from an external standpoint, I don't know if she feels that way, but this seems like uh, an incredibly important piece of scholarship where basically one of the things she points out in the book is that Jung's, Jung had a, a deep lifelong fascination and interest and, and practice of astrology, 
But in, in a lot of the biographies on Jung, this is not dealt with very well. In a lot of his collected works, it's not represented very well, like how much of that was an important piece of his life. And so part of what she tried to do in these volumes is rectify that by taking a not just a magnifying glass, but um I don't know, I don't know what the better analogy is, like a like a loudspeaker or something, in order to really magnify and show just to what extent um Jung was both influenced by astrology and his thinking. And then, to some extent, how Jung influenced other people in his in, in, with his astrological thinking. And I think one reason why it's successful is that you do need to steep yourself in his body of work, which is so rich because he was into everything. I mean, he had so many strands of ancient culture that he brought together. And in order to unpack all of those, you know, looking at what. It's almost like I want to call her Dr. Green and not just Liz because she does have that. <laughs> but looking right. at what she's been making um, happened through the Sophia Center in at the Sky and Symbol Conference in 2011. She gave a paper on the astrology of Libra Novus that was published in um, at, as in the same volume of the same name, and it's a 40-page article that I think was the seed in 2011 already that then finally emerged as the second volume that we're not going to discuss here, and yet that essay experiencing her read that was an amazing transformation of like how to understand Jung's astrology, how to understand Jung, how to understand astrology. And, and I don't think that we could see it without having her having spent decades doing the work, being an analyst, being an astrologer, and then turning into getting the tools of academia to help flesh that out with history, with philosophy, with different approaches, um, that it's, it's a book that does need you know four decades to write because there's no way to do it quickly. There's no way to just read Jung. I mean, we could even probably spend a whole seminar, you know, talking about this book and not just one podcast. So there's so much in there, and I think it's it's definitely that culmination point of so many things. And you can't read, and it's almost like what I'm trying to say is you have to have that embodied experience of being an analyst the embodied experience of being an astrologer and the embodied experience of being an academic, all three have to combine to yeah, create good this. Point. And, yeah. Right. And she's done it. So that's. Yeah. And, and nobody, because of that, because of her unique background, nobody could have pulled this book off as well as she did having just finished it and in, in merging those separate areas, those basically three separate areas of like one being an astrologer and background in astrology two. Um, background in Jung and Jungian psychology, and then three, finally, background in uh, the history of astrology and, and academic sort of scholarship on not just the history of astrology, but the history of Western um, culture and religion and esoteric trends, basically. Are right, the, the, yeah. Because you've got things. so many, um, you know, this book goes through so many different, uh, you know, chapter by chapter, you've got Iamblichus, Plotinus, and all of these different traditions that come together, and, and to, under, to understand even just the distinctions, like what is Iamblichus actually saying? You could spend weeks just thinking about that alone, and that's not even Jung, you know. Um, and so this this is years and years of work behind this, you know. Yeah, I I really I would love to know how long she's been working on this two volume set, like when. Exactly, was she given access to Jung's archive? So I'd I'd love to to know that. Does anybody have any idea? 
Um, I don't know, but one of you in our notes posted like a picture of of Liz and her and Young's daughter, uh, Gret. Yes, that- yes, I found that on Astro dot com. That was taken in nineteen eighty five. Yeah, so it's like that was nineteen eighty five. So she's been had some relationship with the family at least since back then. But it seems like the publication, and maybe this is the time to finally talk about it, of the Red Book in two thousand nine was some kind of like watershed moment where other areas of Young's thought um, that might not have been as politically correct. I don't know if that's the right word, but where there's like different parts of Young's thought were that were suddenly exposed and came out, and you kind of realized, or people realized that Young was into into some weird studies and and into esoteric the study of esoteric thought a bit deeper than perhaps anyone previously realized that maybe that opened up some things as well. So let's touch on that point. And Laura, you did a great job constructing sort of a history and timeline of Young's life uh, when we were preparing for this episode. So maybe you could help me with that a little bit and let's give some biographical detail on Young. Um, I'm trying to think of how to do that concisely. Maybe we could do it concisely if I asked you like some rapid fire questions just to like give the audience background without us getting too bogged down. What do you, what do you think? Sure. Um, I do want to add something though to what you two were talking about, um, about kind of the genesis of this book. What Sanu Shamdasani says in the foreword is about, you know, Liz Green writing these books is that it's something that, and, and I need to give some background on him. He's a Jungian scholar in London. He's a professor of the history of medicine. And he is the one that got close to Jung's family. So it's Jung's heirs have a foundation. And he is the liaison of that family to the outside world. And it is solely, I think, because of him that the Red Book was published. But what he says in the foreword to Liz Green, let's call her Dr. Green, Dr. Green's book is that It's something that he's been searching for, he said, in vain for several decades, yet paradoxically, it could only have been written now. And something, Chris, I heard you interviewed Chiron LeGrice about the book that he co-edited with Saffron Rossi called Jung on Astrology, which is a collection of Jung's writings, right? So it's very different from what Liz Green did. But he pointed out when you were having a discussion with him that there are three volumes of Jung's collected works that are devoted to alchemy, but none devoted to astrology. And yes, astrology is mentioned in the collected works. And Jen, I want to tell you that I do have the digital version of the collected works and I, (laughs) it's convenient, but it is extremely difficult to use because you can't know where you are. Oh, it d- yeah it it'll it does have paragraph numbers, but it doesn't tell you which volume you're in. It has hundreds of thousands of pages, and it'll say you are on page one hundred eighty-eight thousand seven hundred nineteen, wow. but it won't tell you what volume you're in. Very frustrating to use, um, but it is a lot less expensive to purchase the whole entire digital. Um, version. I think Amazon has it for about $290. Uh, 
So, um, so Sham Dasani points out that there is no work like this work that Dr. Green just, just put out. And he said that the reason why it could not have been written until now, two reasons. And one is the publication of the Red Book, which he said revealed how Jung's readings um, influenced him. You know, his, because that Red Book is his dreams and his visions and his fantasies. And I think it is very misunderstood. And that's why it took so long for it to become, to be published is because there was a lot of fear and anxiety around that. And, um, and, and it showed us how Jung used those things to, to, you know, to construct his, his own work because all of Jung's theories, all of them are contained in that red book. And that's not just my opinion. I've heard numerous analysts say that. And the other reason Shamdasani points out is a writer, specifically Liz Green, appeared who had the necessary background, um, like you were saying, Jen, you know, in the relevant fields to find the place of astrology in Jung, in Jung's work and Jung's work within the history of astrology. So those two things he said that, um, that they came about at the right time and that's why this work was, was able to get done now. So as far as background on Jung, where should we start? Sure. So I just wanted to explain because my audience, I mean, I have to admit that myself, I mean, my background is in the history of astrology and especially um, ancient astrology and, and, you know, I spent ten years working on my own book on Hellenistic astrology that was practiced from like the first century BCE until the seventh century CE, and trying to write a book about the history and philosophy and techniques of that. And so, I don't, you know, coming into this, I'm only now, in retrospect, coming back to Young. I, I was really interested in his work on synchronicity, and I devoured a lot of that while I was in college at Kepler. But I haven't read a lot of his other stuff, so. I didn't know who Dasani was. I haven't read the Red Book, and a lot of this is new to me, and that's part of the reason we're putting off the full discussion of that. So, providing some context, even for for our listeners who may have no idea what it is, is important. So, Young basically started. He, he was born in 1875. Um, he was practicing as a like a psychiatrist by the time he was what like 25 or so around, or he got his degree around the time he was. It was of the turn of the century around like 1900, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, he eventually met Freud and he was really impressed with Freud's work and they became colleagues and had almost like a mentorship relationship, except it became tense uh, after a few years and eventually they had a falling out in like 1911, right? Uh, it was a little before that. What happened was after Jung finished medical school and he got a job at the Berkholsley Mental Hospital, he read Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, which was published in 1900. And he used it to treat his first patient, Sabina Spielrein. And that's actually, that whole drama is depicted in the Cronenberg film, A Dangerous Method. So it was a success. And Jung's wife, Emma, suggested that he write to Freud, and he did, and they eventually met. And Jung was so impressed with Freud and um, said, you know, nobody else could compare. He's intelligent and shrewd. And 
And Freud lo loved Jung and wanted him to be his successor because Jung's considerably uh, younger than Freud. Um, and, and Jung didn't like that. He didn't, he didn't want to be, he, he said it was embarrassing to be called Freud's successor. He didn't like that. So um, actually it was Emma who put a stop to that. And, but like I wrote in that outline and when I was doing research, it said that from the beginning, you know, their first meeting, which was in February of 1907, it said Jung had hesitations and doubts about Freud. And so they, they came to the United States a couple years later. And I think that that was really the start of the breakdown of their relationship because there was just this there was just so many differences there. They had differences of opinion and there was tensions in their personal relationship because even though they were both kind of born into poverty, Jung married the second wealthy into the second wealthiest family in Switzerland. So his wife had a lot of money and like when she booked the trip on the ship that brought them both to the United States um, when they were invited by Clark University, Jung stayed in first class on the ship and Freud had to stay down below, you know, kind of like coach, coach class. And he was resentful of that. Um, so. Sure. But, but they, there was more, I mean, they had much bigger sort of philosophical and, and, uh, other differences in terms of that, that sort of contributed to their falling out eventually, especially, I mean, it seems like from my perspective, it seems like Jung's tendency towards esotericism yes. would have been like a major issue that Freud had. And, and Jung it was. was getting into astrology at this point while he was in the middle of his relationship with Freud. Yeah, that's true. And, and in one of the letters, you can see Jung like almost trying to talk Freud into um, you know, paying attention or looking into this astrology thing and, and trying to couch it in like Freudian terms using the words like libido and stuff like that. Um, so Freud was probably viewing Jung as as like a a potential, you know, heir and and hoping that he would take up the mantle of his approach to psychology, but Jung had his own ideas and was headed in his own direction. And and I misspoke earlier because it seems like it was actually a few years later, it was 1913 when they finally had their falling out and then never really spoke again. Right, right. It was the beginning of 1913, and Jung started on the Red Book in 1913. And there's some dates that say that he wrote it from 1913 to 1930, but it was actually just about, it was just under a year. Um, he did attempt to add to it at some point because it's actually an unfinished book. So, just a little bit about how that started. So, they they, Jung and Freud were very close. Um, the three of them, along with Alfred Adler, became kind of world known because they were being invited to speak and they were traveling and speaking and writing and becoming really well known. And Jung became more famous than Freud. And of course, that was another resentment that he had. So when they went their separate ways, Jung sunk into a deep depression. And I was talking to uh, an analyst about this. And I said, would that have happened to Jung had he not had that, that rift or that, that separation, that break in the relationship from Freud? And he said, well, yeah, probably he would have anyway. So 
I think that there are a lot of things happening all at the same time. And Jung, you know, it's kind of difficult for me to see how this is characterized by the general public because I've seen it described as a nervous breakdown, as a psychotic episode, um, as a deep depression. And I don't think any of those are true. Um, I think that you're going to hear different stories from different people, but that's why I, I like to go to Jungian analysts because I like to go to the people who train with, you know, I'd like to go straight to the source. And so Jung's, that, that period of time for him was his, what's called his, or described as his confrontation with the unconscious. So it was kind of his first step toward his own individuation and his rediscovery of his soul. And it was this time of transition and some people would call it a midlife crisis. Um, he was in his mid to late thirties when it happened. And, but I mean, midlife is not so much chronological as it is psychological. He was mourning his loss of the relationship. And he also was sensing this change in the air. And it was turned out it was the brink of World War One. So there was actually nothing morbid or life threatening about his, the transition that he made or the, you know, that, that, whatever you want to call it. Um, he, because he was still able to work. He was still sure. able to see patients. Yeah. And still able to be a husband and a father. And, you know, I had asked my friend who's an analyst in on the UK, I said, well, you know, how did he get over it? And he said, he didn't get over it. He went through it. Yeah. So, so yeah. So he, he had the break with Freud. He went through a very, um, uh, it was a difficult, but also a very important, um, sort of period and, and maybe transformation psychologically. And he wrote some journals about this period and about what he was going through and mm. some of his meditations and some of his insights and dreams and other things at the time. And those were like in, in I guess, little private journals. And then at some point he decided to put them into a larger book that he worked on over the course of like 20 or 30 years or something that was like a big uh, red leather book that he wrote in, but also did these these beautiful um, paintings in as well at the same time. Uh, but that book, eventually, he died in in the 1960s, and that book was never published. and And I'd, I'm not I'm a little right. unclear on whether he intended to publish it and didn't, yeah. or what, because it seems like one of the things that comes up in Liz's book about his astrology in Dr. Green's book about his astrology is that he does seem to have been he seems to have held back and that he did not for example quote contemporary or cite any contemporary astrologers in his collected works but instead he would sometimes quote like ancient astrologers to put it in the context of like history the history of thought or something like that but that he may have actually been, and based on his statements to some other people, like reticent about admitting the extent of his interest in astrology, and for similar reasons, um, perhaps the the Red Book, this book that he worked on for a few decades in his life, was never published in his lifetime. Uh, it was something that was known about by a few people 
who were very high up in like the Jungian hierarchy of of either analysts or or scholars, but it wasn't until um, this other scholar came along in the 1990s who convinced the family that it should be published and that this needed to be published. And he started working on it, and I think they said he worked on it for 13 years or something yeah, before it was published in, in 2009, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he worked on it in secret. He was one of three translators. Okay. So, so and they published this this beautiful and a huge book in 2009 uh, with a translation of the text and all of the illustrations. And um, this is, and he's also the head of basically the the foundation that is tasked with publishing all of the remaining unpublished writings of Young, right? Yeah, he's the co-founder of the Philemon Foundation that is dedicated to publishing all of Jung's unpublished works. And from what I understand, most of what Jung has written has not even been published yet. Okay, so, so there yeah, if you look at the enormity of what he has written, not only his collected works, but his lectures and seminars and his letters, it's I think it's a, a life's work to get through all of it and to study all of it, but there's more to come. Sure. So, and this is the scholar that you mentioned who wrote the foreword to Liz Green's new book, uh, Sanu Sham, Shamdasani. He was the guy that published the Red Book in 2009 and, and finally led to that coming out. So, the fact that he wrote the introduction to this book is really striking because it it shows that Liz Green has attained this sort of level in terms of academic scholarship on Young where she's up there with with some of the other leading scholars uh, and she's being sort of recognized for for that contribution or at least they recognize what a significant contribution this book in ter- in terms of understanding Young's background and thought is so, yeah, and I just would like to add one more thing that I ne- neglected to say earlier is that these books were published by Rutledge, which is academic, really. And I don't think any of her other books have been published by a company like that. Right. So I, I was, it, I really noticed that because they also publish other books I have that were written by Jungian analysts, but this is the first of hers. That I think Rutledge has published, so I was very impressed by that as well. Yeah, it's a it's a major academic publisher. So the basic premise of this book is is a question that I actually had a few months ago when I did the the previous two episodes on Young when that book Young on Astrology came out by Kieran Legrice and Saffron Rossi, which is they gathered together for the first time all of his statements about astrology from his published works and from some of his letters and it really demonstrated that astrology was a major component in his thought and in his philosophy and that he had a, had a lifelong fascination with and focus on the subject but one of the the lingering questions then that I had after reading that book was you know where did he get his astrology from or what sources influenced him in terms of his study of astrology like where did he learn astrology from and so that's one of the things that Liz Green set out to do with this book. And that discussion is primarily, it's really not the entire book. That discussion is actually mostly focused on chapter two. And I was almost a little surprised that chapter two was, it's not like the only treatment of that, but it's the main treatment of that in the book. I mean, was that your impression as well, Jen? Yeah. And 
I was surprised at how short it was. I was hoping, given that she had access to more private materials, that maybe he had written stuff that we hadn't seen yet, and and I wanted more. <laughs> but, yeah. Sure. I mean, so, but at least in terms of what, what she did end up focusing on, it's like the main chapter, or the main emphasis of that chapter seemed to be that his two primary influences were um, the works of Alan Leo, especially, and then secondary, secondarily Max Heindel and the Rosicrucian sort of astrologers that were associated with that that group, basically, right? Yeah, and you know, it's also interesting because German astrologers at that time were developing a lot of different approaches, and um, it's you know they weren't necessarily interfacing with Jung, but he wasn't interfacing with them either. And so in this chapter, what we see is that Jung was talking to Dutch astrologers, British astrologers, Scottish astrologers, but he wasn't really talking to German astrologers until he'd, until after he had already formulated his variety of astrology. Right. And, and that was kind of interesting because it seemed like, I mean, part of the way that I think she took it is that he was interested in a certain type or a certain approach to astrology and that already very early on because of his psychological background and his developing of concepts like the the collective unconscious and the archetypes that he was more interested in a, in a psychological or like mythopoetic sort of approach to astrology and therefore gravitated towards astrologers who uh, were headed in that direction even if they weren't already there like Alan Leo and his focus his saying um you know character is destiny and and therefore his his tendency to push astrology more in the direction of character analysis or she seemed to argue uh, green seemed to argue that some of um max heindel's use of mythology as an interpretive principle in astrology seemed to really mirror uh or act as a precursor in some sense of something that became a major component in young's work in terms of using uh, mythology as a major access point for understanding astrological symbolism and, and meaning, basically, right? Yeah, that seemed to be a really interesting payoff. You know, the reluctance of anyone at that time to talk about astrology in terms of prediction has a history not only in the legal persecution taking place in England of it, but also in German-speaking lands. I'm not sure for Switzerland, but in Germany, prophecy was outlawed and so astrologers reacted to that by approaching astrology from a diagnostic perspective. Um, and I think the insertion of mythology here allows that instead of just being a mere, you know, flat sketch of personality, you get this dimensionality that he was so focused on. And you get the idea of, you know, um, not just limiting itself to sort of, well, you're you know, you have this aspect to your chart, so you're like this. It's more like, what can you do with that at the next level? That adding myth allowed him to have a deeper engagement. Um, sure. Yeah. And definitely. it was neat to see how that also tracked with the Swiss, or excuse me, the um, Scottish astrologer who dealt with the epoch charts that you get into um, a little later in that chapter. Um, so you're seeing, you know, it's not just Heindel, but it's also this. Um, I'm trying to recall his name. It's new to me because I don't do Scottish astrology, but it's the um, John Thorburn. So having him um, also kind of bring in uh, a facet to 
to Jung's astrology. It was really neat to see that. Um, I have to say, right. I did miss I did miss all my German friends, though. I mean, they kind of get taken care of um, with a few paragraphs. So, <laughs> in terms of the influence of contemporary German astrologers on on Jung, yeah, it seems like to a large extent, Jung did not engage with the living community. He was very interested in the ancient sources, and so. There were astrologers who aren't mentioned in this book who were inspired by Jung to incorporate his ideas into their psychological astrology. And um, yeah, I think that that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of his influence. You know, he wasn't engaged in the astrological community. Uh, there were attempts. There was a group in Darmstadt. This is also not discussed here, but in her book, which I missed that discussion. So she does talk about an astrologer named Oskar Schmitz. Uh, Oscar Schmitz was trying to get Jung to engage more with a group in Darmstadt and be more out as an astrologer, and Jung kept resisting. And at one point, he did give in and give a lecture on the earthboundedness of the soul. And um, a woman from there named Olga von Ungern Sternberg, Baroness Olga von Ungern Sternberg, it's quite a mouthful, we can put it in the notes to the podcast episode. Um, she ended up writing an article in 1925 about psychology and astrology, and then again a book in 1928, and she practiced from a Jungian perspective at that point. And, and that doesn't appear anywhere here. So it's kind of an interesting omission, I think, in terms of like, you know, who is he influencing? You know, maybe he wasn't influenced by these people, but he was definitely influencing others at that time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like he did have some connections like the the astrologer you mentioned thornburn as a result of um like people that were connected with the psychological work that he was doing like he was meeting other people through freud or through his own psychological um school and sometimes patients and then occasionally it was those people that had that sort of psychological background already and then had some interest in astrology that he was then interfacing with and getting readings from. I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about this chapter, about chapter two of the book, is, you know, different astrologer, like Jung was act- actively going around at certain points getting interpretations of his chart from different astrologers and sometimes um, either doing his own, looking at his own timing of like transits and progressions, or he was having other people calculate his transits and progressions for different. Important periods in his life, like that period in the 19 teens where he was going through such an important and, and somewhat difficult transformative phase, um, and and sort of trying to f- perhaps figure out what was going on. Yeah, I'd be curious to read if there are any notes that he wrote to himself in a diary or something about those readings and what he thought of them. Um, that would be sort of an interesting perspective to, or I mean, I'm not sure that's even possible to do, but seeing these various beautiful replications of these charts that were drawn um, makes me wonder, well, how did he take the feedback he was being given? You know, what did he do with it? What did he apply from it? Um, Did it affect him in terms of how he shifted his astrology in any way? Um, You know, I mean, uh, you know, this one experiment with the epoch, Green points out that was kind of a blip on the radar, but I'm glad that it's included because it gives us a sense of the sort of shopping around that he was doing and it's like, well, he he dabbled in that. He got exposed to it, got something from it, and then moved on, you know, and kept going. But it wasn't like he wasn't interested in figuring out different aspects, right? Because this person comes in with this 
it's a long concept, right? The epoch chart goes back for quite a ways and gets reinvigorated in the early 20th century. But it was actually developed before that. And so I think he was sort of saying, oh, someone's bringing this back. Let's see what it's like. Let's take a taste, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the major things that I took from the book, especially after chapter two, because it's like chapter two, she deals with what were his contemporary sources that he was drawing on that were like um, astrologers in the early 20th century whose works Young was reading and then developing a system for astrology based on. And the, the conclusion is primarily Alan Leo and Max Heindel. But then it seems like after that, I mean, one of the conclusions that I, I drew and I'm not sure if this is the same conclusion that she drew, is that Jung had such an interest in Western thought, and he, and he was really focused on going back and studying the, the history of Western thought and philosophy and esotericism, that he tended, it seemed like his studies tended to trend towards older authors and material. And it was almost curious not seeing a more like contemporary astrological works in his library, evidently, where she said, like he picked up at one point Rudyard's first book, The Astrology of Personality, who's one of the first major authors who started incorporating Jung into his work. But then she said he didn't have any other works works of Rudyard in his library, supposedly in terms of what she had access to, you know, now after his death, and therefore drew the conclusion that Rudyard wasn't somebody that drew his interest. And it was it seemed similar with other contemporary astrologers and it seemed like part of the reason for that is that he tended to go back and focus on older works and he did cite like renaissance authors like Jerome Cardan or Johannes Kepler um he did cite he went back and read medieval works so he read the works of Abu Mashar on mundane astrology um and then he went back and he read other ancient works like Hellenistic authors like Ptolemy, and apparently he had access to Valens, to Vedius Valens, and he read some parts of, of Valens at least. Um, and then, in terms of his philosophy, the main, th- a large part of what she ends up focusing on for most of the rest of the book after chapter two was how much Jung was influenced by ancient, um, often esoteric philosophies like Hermeticism and Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. And and a lot of basically like most of the second half of the book is basically it's almost not even about Jung's studies of astrology. It's about how Jung's study of ancient medieval and Renaissance and classical philosophical and occult works that were all influenced by astrology ended up influencing Jung's own philosophy. Yeah. And so for example, she suggests that Plotinus's essay on whether the stars are causes where Plotinus makes this impassioned case that astrology doesn't work through the planets influencing life on Earth, but instead it works through cosmic sympathy and the planets acting as symbols or signs of what's happening on Earth. She ends up arguing that that had a major impact on Jung's later attempt to formulate a modern version of a concept of cosmic sympathy through his concept of or theory of synchronicity. Well, there's two points. We started with books in his library, and then we landed in ancient philosophy. So I kind of want to maybe go back to library just for a quick second and sure, then move sure. back on to um, my favorite part of the book is a footnote on page 68, hidden in the depths of this, because um, I also would want to know what was in Jung's library. And Liz says, books, as I was assured by Andreas Jung, tend to, quote, walk from private libraries after the death of their owner, 
due to the claims of family members and friends. Many of Jung's astrological texts found their way into the library of his daughter Gret, who was herself a practicing astrologer. As Jung did not usually write his name in his books, it's impossible to ascertain which works in Gret's astrological library might have initially belonged to him. And at one point, I was able to actually see a photocopy of a list of books that he had in his library. That was back in 2011. And I was surprised at that time in the thick of my own PhD research that a lot of the names that I was seeing weren't in there. But reading this footnote actually helps me a little bit because it could be that he did have them and they just didn't stick around. Or he had them at one point and eventually, maybe, you know, at some point in 1937 decided to sell them all. Who knows? You know, I mean, there's just a a really open question of like, how do we know what's in someone's library? Um, at what point do we actually get to like sort of lock that in and, you know, um, and then make assumptions about what they knew or didn't know or who they were reading and weren't reading, um, whether he cited them or not. You know, the fact that a lot of things are not cited is an indicator of something, but um, it doesn't mean he wasn't being exposed. And I think it's an interesting thing to bring up. Right. I think I was really glad that you mentioned that in our notes when we were preparing for that because I had overlooked that footnote, partially because I, you know, I really hate, I know just from a layout standpoint that endnotes are so much easier to do just typographically or or whatever instead of footnotes uh, at the bottom of a page, but it's so much easier to like read academic scholarship when the footnotes are at the bottom of the page rather than the end. Anyways, that that being said, um, yeah, I was glad you pointed that out because that really raises a question. It's one of the the criticisms that potentially one could make of the book, and I'm not sure how far to take it or how serious of a criticism it is, which is that a large part of chapter two and a decent portion of the book is based on the premise partially that she can reconstruct part of his thinking and, and the influences on his astrology based on the books that were in his library because he otherwise avoids citing contemporary astrologers. He otherwise avoided citing contemporary astrologers in his collected works, potentially deliberately because he didn't want to undermine his psychological work by making himself look like an astrologer. So the the premise part of the premise of the book is that because she had access to his library, she could see what books he was drawing on. She could look at, for example, she attempts to date when he would have had access to those books based on the publication date of the books themselves. And so she can figure out like the earliest date that he could have read that book. And she draws conclusions about how early he got a hold of certain copies of Alan Leo's works and other things like that, or when the republication date was and other things like that, um, and attempts to construct a sort of historical narrative about Young's studies of astrology based on the works that were in his library and the dates that were on those books. But then the problem that you're bringing up, which this this footnote sort of acknowledges, uh, is that the library may not be complete and it may actually be missing some books. And that's actually one of that becomes a major issue, like when you're talking about Rudyard, because she she didn't make a huge deal about this, but she did, I think, attempt to draw a conclusion about the fact that Young had. Rudyard's first book, The Astrology of Personality, it was published in 1936, and that Young had some other concert or like piece of music that Rudyard wrote because he was also a musician, but that he didn't have any other books on Rudyard in his library. And then I think she has some speculation about why that may have been. But, you know, if it's true that like his daughter, who was a practicing astrologer, walked off with a bunch of his books or or incorporated those into his library, which would make perfect sense, perhaps then 
that doesn't mean anything. Maybe she w- wanted to read the rest of the Rudyard books, which did become very popular later in the 20th century, and maybe she just like left behind the Alan Leo books, which you know were not as popular by the mm. later part of the 20th century. Right, and also you know Jung's relationship with Oscar Schmitz. That letter exchange started 1921 to 23. Oscar Schmitz's massive book came out, The Spirit of Astrology, in 1922, and. Jung must have known about it, and he was exchanging letters with the man. I can't imagine he wouldn't have read the book, you know, at some capacity, but it, there's no evidence that he had a copy of it. And so I find that surprising. Um, we'll never know. There's just no way to know that. But uh, you'd think that somebody who's exchanging letters with someone about astrology who's... And, and Oscar Schmitz himself was not actually a very good astrologer. He was more of a um, middle-class poet who trafficked in bourgeois circles and liked to be he was sort of a popularizer of astrology his book went into four printings it sold you know thousands and thousands of copies over the course of that next decade so he sort of it was kind of a popular figure but not necessarily a good technical figure um sure yeah it's sure and it's like i don't we don't know what the answer is because i could see it going either way it's like i could see you know like his daughter, for example, taking some of his astrological works and therefore the current library holding is not being fully representative. But then I could also see it's like astrologers figure out, especially within like the first decade or two of their studies, if they've been doing it for like a decade or two, like they get into a system and they figure out what approach yeah. works for them. And then they tend to focus down on that system rather mm-hmm. than then continuing to like read widely about other approaches that they don't necessarily agree on. Like if somebody does like Western astrology, then they don't necessarily have a bunch of books on like Indian astrology or Chinese astrology in their library as well. And I could see him focusing in on or even becoming increasingly focused on older works on astrology, which he did seem to to collect and cite. Um so so it's like who knows? I could see it going either way. It's just a potential issue with with that part of the book in terms of drawing conclusions that might be overly strong or overly strict like saying if we were to try to draw the conclusion that like young didn't care for rudyard or something like that it, i mean it's possible because he seems to have had some issues with theosophy and therefore may have rejected some of rudyard's works on the basis of the extent to which rudyard was incorporating all sorts of theosophy into what was otherwise a more psychological approach to astrology. But then on the other hand, maybe he did have some of Rudyard's later books and we just don't know that. Well, I'm I, on that note, there were more astrologers in the German-speaking world than not who had something against the theosophical approach to astrology. I would say 80% of the astrologers practicing during that time were not happy with the influence theosophy had on astrology. Sure. So that's a really important point, I think, that needs to be emphasized, and I'm glad that that she emphasizes that here because um, I think that sometimes because the Theosophical Publishing House was the vector of transmission from Britain to the German-speaking world in the early you know, 1907, 1911, we get this impression that everybody was a Theosophical astrologer, but it very, very quickly changed into let's look back at older sources, let's look to Kepler, let's see what our heritage is, let's get past this smushing, this lumping. Um, so yeah, sure. 
that's just for a wider historical lens. Jung wasn't the only one. He was actually, it was a common view to have that and, position. And that was, I think that was actually partially my conclusion that I was drawing. I forget, she drew some other conclusion about why he might not have been interested in Rudyard. And, and I forget what she said, but it was, that was actually my impression that because of the previous statements about his lack of affinity for theosophy or his like antipathy towards it in some, some ways that Rudyard's integration of theosophical ideas might have been what would have been problematic to him about it, but you know who knows. Um, that's one thing I actually meant to mention at the start of this episode is that I almost felt like we needed to say from the start that in in the absence of being able to ask Doctor Green questions directly herself, we pretty much have to guarantee that we may misinterpret or misconstrue some of her conclusions or state our own conclusions based on what she presented that she may actually not agree with herself. So I hope we're not, you know, doing that too much yes. or going too far afield here, but I meant to preface this discussion with that earlier. Yeah, could I make a point um so Jung's daughter Gret, um she practiced astrology and she lived until 1995. Jung died in 1961, so that's over 30 years that she could have, you know, ransacked the library and taken whatever she wanted out of there. Um, I mean, if my dad was like a prominent astrologer who had an awesome library, I would totally take books from, yeah. from that. Well, here's another thing about, <laughs> about Gret is that she taught astrology courses at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. I'd love to know what she taught. What kind of astrology did she teach? Sure. Mm -hmm. that, and that was actually something you noted that you were surprised about is that because Gret, yeah. his daughter, was an astrologer, you were surprised that she didn't feature more prominently in this book or that there wasn't more discussion right. about that fact because it seemed like a important um, piece of context for the broader case that, that this book ends up building, which is I mean, basically that, that Young was, I mean, this goes back to an argument that I made a few episodes ago, which is that depending on how you define the word astrologer, I think Young fits the definition that Young was arguably an astrologer. And if he was an astrologer, then he would have consequently been one of, if not the most influential astrologers of the 20th century uh, to the extent of how his work and his research ended up influencing the astrological tradition in the shape of modern astrology. But anyways, one of, one of the points that you made was you were surprised then that in building that case that there wasn't a little bit more discussion about his daughter as an astrologer, right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, a couple other things came to mind when you were talking is that Jung was very concerned about his scientific reputation. Right. And so when you were talking about how he didn't cite uh, contemporary astrologers, but did reference um, the the ancient ones, it just made me think of, I had read an interview um, in the book C.G. Jung Speaking, and he was asked, had you not pursued psychiatry and psychology, what profession would you have entered? And he said that he would have been an archaeologist, and he was fascinated with ancient Egypt. And so it, it made sense to me that he looked to those astrologers. I don't know, it just, it kind of fit for me that that's who he looked to. Um, but as far as not being involved with contemporary astrologers, that too makes a lot of sense to me that he was being really careful because he wanted to be, he was an empiricist and he wanted to be taken seriously. And astrology, I, 
I don't know, it just wasn't there at that time. And he was also introverted. That too. Yeah. Well, well, and that's his, his, um, not embarrassment, but his trepidation surrounding being very overt or being, being very open about his, his belief in and his practice in astrology is really relatable to me because I think anybody who mm-hmm. is sort of even vaguely aware of how astrology is, is largely viewed in mainstream academia or in scientific circles or other things like that understands that it's not viewed positively and that if you say that you're like a practicing astrologer, um, people are going to have a negative response and might think less of you as a result of that. They might assume that you you're, you're into like something that's really crazy. Right. Um, What's interesting though is the Strauss family, Strauss Klobe, and um, these other figures, the German figures that do appear in chapter two, were involved with the movement at that time of people who had PhDs who were doing astrology. So this trend that you pointed out at the beginning of the mm-hmm. episode happened in Germany in 1923, 24, 25. And you ended up having a whole entire um, group of people who were required to have PhDs that could not be a part of that astrological organization unless they were a doctorate as well. Right. And so, you know, there was something burgeoning there, you know, not to say that, you know, I mean, Jung is off in Switzerland, not to say he had to go and hop the border and be a part of that, but there was definitely a massive movement towards trying to integrate astrology back into the academy back then. Right. But it, but ultimately it wasn't successful or, or failed to the extent that it didn't have a lasting impact in making astrology academically or scientifically acceptable in terms of mainstream academia or, or scientific trends. And, and it doesn't help if you have 12 years of dictatorship. Right. Well, yeah. But but Jung probably would have been met with a similar thing, which is like, hey, I can create um, a flourishing school for psychology. I can draw on all of these ancient philosophical and esoteric and other mythological trends, and I can create um, an amazing working model of contemporary psychology that draws on that stuff but does not openly at least completely um, disclose what it is that that's motivating part of this, and it can actually grow and flourish and be successful in modern times. Or I can attempt to, you know, force some of those views into the mainstream somehow, and potentially have my work not be in psychology, not be accepted as a result of it. And it seems like he ended up choosing the the former. And decided to to attempt to make his work look as acceptable as it could by not overly emphasizing some of the esoteric currents like astrology that were were influencing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and and I also wonder um, about this is just my a, a thought I had. I also wonder about time. How much time that this man have? He was seeing patients, and he had five children, and a wife and a mistress who some people call a second wife and he was doing research and he was traveling so you know he went to africa and he went to india and he came to the united states a number of times and so I just wonder how much time he had to devote to subjects that weren't necessarily his main focus which was his patients and also the push for looking to more ancient sources would have been 
would have been the mode of academic acceptance at that time. You know, there was mm-hmm. a phil- the return to philology. There was this trying to plumb the depths of human legacy. And so if you think about what that would be like today, you know, it's like, yeah, look to these sources and you wouldn't necessarily read the person next door to you who just finished writing something. You would be reading yeah. into tablets and you'd be looking at papyrus and you'd be looking at all these ancient sources to sort of see the trajectory and the philological background of how these concepts move through time and land on us. You know? Right. Well, well, and that's the single most fascinating thing about this book and about what Liz Green did here is basically she demonstrated that everything all those astrologers, you know, modern Western astrologers started saying in the 1990s when there was like Project Hindsight and like the back to classical traditional astrology movement and we need to go back and study the origins of the tradition because there's stuff that we lost that we can recover and can be integrated and synthesized with modern astrology to improve it. Jung basically already did all of that uh, in the early 20th century. He had training in Latin and Greek. He was uh, had training as an, an academic scholar, and he went back and did all of those studies in a lot, or at least large portions of traditional astrology and ancient philosophical and um, esoteric thought. And that basically becomes part of the motivation or the undercurrent, which eventually led to the creation of his, not just his psychology, but also his broader philosophy and cosmology and his approach to astrology. Um, and that, that's basically the most fascinating thing about this book to me is the, is just how steeped Jung was in older, um, traditional astrological and philosophical thought and how that ended up influencing his views on astrology. Yeah, I agree. So, um, and that, that really takes up a large part of pretty much after chapter two, once she deals with, you know, his contemporary sources, most of the rest of the book is just discussing and providing context for the different esoteric and, and ancient philosophical schools that he was drawing on. So to one an extent, th- um, these, these last chapters are almost like getting a master's degree from the Sophia Center because you're going through these texts as if you were in the seminars, you know, this is very, this is what we were reading. You know, I had flashbacks reading this going like, oh man, I feel like I'm back in class. This is great. You know? <laughs> like, right. Well, yeah. And, and for me, I mean, I'm reading about all of this. This is what I spent the past 10 years doing in researching my book and trying to write a book about ancient astrology was I had to go back and study like hermeticism and I had to study Gnosticism and Neoplatonism and everything else. And that's basically every chapter of this book. She's focusing on recounting and talking about the philosophical assumptions underlying some of those ancient schools and then showing how that influenced Jung's thought. So one of the chapters, she talks a lot about the concept of fate and the planetary spheres in ancient cosmology and how fate was associated with the planets and that there was this belief in some philosophical and esoteric schools that when the soul descends into incarnation before birth, that it passes through the planetary spheres and it takes on the qualities of each of the planets in the process. And then that when we die, the soul ascends back through the planetary spheres and it gives back to each of the planets the qualities that it had taken from them when it was born. So she talks about that. She spends a lot of time talking about that and how ancient views on fate and ensoulment influenced Jung's own views. She talks about, she has a whole chapter talking about 
some of the discussions in the Neoplatonists like Iamblichus and Porphyry about the concept of the master of the nativity, which is the overall ruler of the chart, which Iamblichus and Porphyry says that some astrologers in their time period used in order to find the guardian daimon or the guardian spirit, which um, influences the native's personality as well as their sort of life direction or their destiny. So the fact that she has like a whole discussion about the philosophical backdrop behind that, as well as some of the the technical backdrop in terms of how astrologers sometimes calculated the the master of the nativity, which is really funny to me because that's actually the talk I'm giving next month at UAC. Is one of my talks is the master of the nativity in ancient astrology and how to calculate it. And oh, nice. so it was really. You might have to add some new slides after reading this book. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, it it gave me an interesting example, actually, because Jung, what she ends up focusing on is that Jung had Aquarius rising with Saturn in Aquarius in the first house, basically, um, in a day chart. And so one of the candidates for the master of the nativity, um, or at least the co-master of the nativity, is the domicile lord of the hour marker or the ruler of the ascendant, basically. Especially if it's well placed, and it is in Young's chart, so that Saturn, as the traditional ruler of Aquarius, would have potentially been considered the the master of the nativity or the overall ruler of his chart, and that may have actually like like Young may have done those calculations and realized that, and that may have had a profound impact on Young and his perception of himself and his personality and his work and like what he was here to do in his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also this whole discussion about like the role of theurgy and the attempt to use some magical practices in order to invoke or in order to identify one's guardian spirit. And that was actually one of the most surprising things to me is that in one of the chapters, she has this whole discussion about Jung's interest in some magical and occult texts. And that part of what he may have been going through in the 20 teens or in the 19 teens, that he may have actually been involved in some magical rituals that were meant to do things like that to invoke one's guardian spirit. And, and that was a whole like fascinating discussion in and of itself that I had no idea about. And, I, and I, I was really curious how other people, like how other Jungian scholars or people that are interested in Jung, what they will will think about about in terms of that and how it relates to things like the red book. I mean did did that how how did you take that chapter Laura? I mean is that stuff that's out there already especially in terms of discussions about the red book or or is that Yeah. was that surprising reading some of that in those chapters? No, I mean it wasn't surprising to me what what I worry about is how when the general public gets just a whiff of things like that, they take it and run with it. Um, so Jung doesn't have a great reputation. And it's not that I don't think the problem is putting information like that out there. I think the problem is the associations we have with things like that. And also, I think that something that we need to consider, and I even find this in the Jungian community when I hear some criticisms of Jung is that, uh, you know, he wrote, he, look, 
that was the language of the time, right? So people who criticize the language that he uses about women, about primitives, they're not accepting that he wrote in the time that he lived. And so, for instance, um, when he was in medical school, he was attending seances with his mom. That would, can you imagine telling, going to the coffee shop tomorrow morning and saying, you know, you were at a seance last night? I mean, that's not just, it will, I, I think maybe in some circles it's more acceptable, but for a psychiatrist to say, I was at a seance last night, um, that's not okay. So when information like that is published about Jung, I, I get a little worried because of how it's going to be taken. But in my analysis, and the reason why I chose Jungian analysis is because all of those experiences are very accepted because of Jung. And that's the thing that I love about Jung and what drew me to Jung is because, I mean, I'm interested in all of these things. You know, Jung was about the totality of the psyche. And for me, I mean, isn't that what the horoscope symbolizes? It's a circle and we all have it all. We all have those planets in our horoscope. And so these experiences that we have, visions and dreams and fantasies and creativity bubbling up and out-of-body experiences and communications and all of that, Jung dealt with and experienced. And so this Philemon, you know, was based on a dream he had very early on in 1913. And so do I think that Jung conjured it, it up and used magic? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. And another thing that I love about Jung is I feel like he did all the research and we're benefiting from it. Right. You know, he didn't, yeah, he didn't just do it intellectually. He experienced it. He had these experiences and, um, and, 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 and he then delved into it and he wasn't afraid, you know, he went, he had such a great support system around him and he went in there and he let himself go. And so, yeah. I'm, and, and he recorded it. I mean, I think the right. Libra Novus is the, yeah. the locus of everything you just said in terms of that experience, like, you know, Chris, to just circle back to your original question, it was about the, how did the sort of theurgical um, come across and two facets. One is uh, his experience of Libra Novus and creating that was theurgy. It was mm. simply exactly that. The idea of the ascent, the descent, recording it, the art practice that leads to all of these fruits that is his entire career. Yeah. Um, and the circle shape, um, you know, we haven't read volume two. There's so much more to unpack, but this is just the foretaste. I think that the publisher probably had to say, you know, we've, this is so much material. Let's get people into the foundation with volume one, give them the philosophical background so that by the time you get volume two, I bet we're getting ready to have almost a theurgical experience mm -hmm. just reading it. Good point. Um, and at that time too, in Germany, just to again, widen that scope a little bit, experience was a massive topic of conversation. Not only the experience of living through World War One, um, and granted, I know that he wasn't in Germany during that time, but this was something that did rock Europe. 
but um, having experiences of things and, and incorporating that Gnostic individual knowledge that Iamblichus does talk about um, was a really big, big part of recovering from that conflict in Europe and people trying to figure out what can we know and what are we, what is shattered now and what can we rebuild and how can we engage this world? Um, you know, Freud ended up going on to call it shell shock. And, you know, you have all these responses to the experience of that war, that first mechanized war. And I don't think that we can neglect that in talking about um, the development of these types of experiential ways of knowing and going back to ancient experiential ways of knowing that precede scientism and precede the enlightenment and that fracturing of our consciousness into spirit and, and body. Right. And I mean, you know, that's what is interesting. And I guess that's what she's trying to do for the most part with this book is just, and that was my takeaway from it is just that Young's approach was influenced by all of these ancient philosophical and esoteric trends but then the people that have adopted his approach are not necessarily aware of or intimately familiar with these trends, and or at least it does not appear to be evident in terms of the practice of Jungian psychology for the most part, which is sort of its own modern thing. And while it does create a, a template that is much more open to those types of, let's say, religious or philosophical or esoteric trends than other philosophical schools that might immediately write them off as, you know, insanity or something like that. It's still not necessarily, you, you know, some of the things that Jung was into and Jung was doing evidently are still not necessarily present in just like the contemporary practice of Jungian psychology. And Jen, you actually made an interesting comment about that where, where that sometimes happens with other figures as well, right? Yeah, it seems, for example, you know, you can say someone who hangs from Nietzsche's every word and they've never read a word of Latin or Greek. And the thing that makes Nietzsche awesome is how he was a complete and thorough classicist. Right. He had all of the training possible so that by the time he got to making the statements that we think are audacious, he gets to because he's got the foundation and the background to own it. Mm -hmm. But if you start with his endpoint, you don't have that foundation or background, and then you lead to getting sort of this off-kilter reputation or this ability to, you actually don't have solid ground underneath you. You're only imitating Nietzsche at that point. And I think, um, Laura, to speak back to what you were saying, I wonder if this book actually will be amazing at restoring Jung's reputation because of the way that it methodically lays out these more ancient sources in the context of a more robust academic understanding of astrology so that people who might say, well, people who do Jungian analysis, they just make stuff up or they're just, you know, taking things too far. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's circle back and look at what Jung was really doing yeah. with the fuller picture at our disposal of what did Plotinus really mean? What was Iamblichus really about? Because you can't take those figures outside of astrology either. But if you don't know anything about astrology, you can read Iamblichus and think, oh, this is just that. When he says astral, that's what he means. And it's like, no, actually, there's a whole entire other body of human knowledge that he's drawing on that if you don't know what you're looking at, it's easy to neglect it. But once you know, you can't unknow it. Yeah. And and I think that, Chris, I want to thank you for doing the this episode and, and hopefully a, a, the second part, um, because these books can't just sit on someone's shelf or, you know, have somebody buy them from Amazon and start to go through it and say, this is too hard. I, I can't, you know, I don't understand this. These books need to be looked at and 
talked about and discussed. And this is just the beginning because they just came out. So I really hope that they take on a life of their own and, and, um, just are, you know, are, are out there and I'll do everything I can to tell people about them and put it out there that they exist. And it's going to take us a long time to fully you know, get through them and understand them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's I think a great point. Jen. It'll act as a, as a, an entry point or, or like a doorway for a lot of people to, you know, why it's interesting and useful to study, uh, older thought and how that can sometimes mm-hmm. influence modern thought in interesting and unique ways that you don't even realize. Um, it's like, like so many people may not realize how Jung was in- influenced by these things. But at, at this point, after this book and then the publication of the other book by um, Kieran LeGrice and Saffron Rossi, it's this is a turning point. So interestingly, they were both just published this year in the past few months, but this is a turning point yeah. in terms of Jungian st- studies where it's no longer arguable that Jung um, was influenced by astrology and it played a major role in his thought and in the the resulting psychology or approach to psychology that he developed. And she touches on, I mean, this lays the foundation for that, and she touches upon some other ways in which it had a more tangible uh, direct impact on certain things like his system of his typologies um, and I know that's something that you, we touched on a little bit in preparing for this, where it's like that's a whole show in and of itself because he developed mm-hmm. this complex approach to typology, and she tries to argue in, in in the book in one of the early chapters in a roundabout way that some of that would have been influenced by his understanding of astrology, even if there's not a lot of there's not like a paper sitting around that directly correlates exactly how you know like what astrological things he thought correlated with certain type types in his psychology, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why you need someone who spent so many years steeped in it to see what isn't explicit, you know, to make the implicit explicit. Sure, right. I, I just would like to make an, a point that um, I've been wanting to say is that, or maybe I already said this in the beginning, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people in the Jungian community knew that these books were coming. And I had reached out to an analyst um, that I know, um, an, an older gentleman, and I wanted a little bit of background. And he wrote me back because I had asked him if I could call him. He wrote me back and said, you know, I, I don't know anything about astrology, so I don't have anything to add. And this is someone who trained in Zurich um, had an analysis with somebody who was very close to Jung, and I was very surprised to hear that. So I don't know, you know, I don't know why it just was, well, I guess we do know why it was kind of kept under wraps, but also maybe some people, even if they are trained as Jungian analysts and, and, and those who are had to have undergone their own analysis I guess maybe it doesn't always come up. Um, astrology did come up for me. My analyst um, wasn't trained in astrology, didn't use astrology, but she was aware of the fact that Jung did. And it is honestly why I decided to study astrology. Um, it was soon after I started analysis that I wanted to learn about astrology. And and I always say, thank God I did, because I think I would have lost my mind had I not 
learned astrology and understood astrology because it helped me understand myself and the people around me. I'd say more than anything I've learned. Sure. Um, but yeah, but with psychological types, I just want to say really briefly um, what Jung came to realize, and it was because of his differences with Freud and with Adler. And some people think that Jung came up with his model of typology because he felt that he was a different type than, than them. And that's not the case. It was more that he, he wanted to kind of understand why his outlook differed from Freud's and Adler's, not his type, but his outlook. And just briefly on type, he saw that not everybody uses their mind in the same way. And that made me think of the planet Mercury, how we all have Mercury in a certain sign, in a certain house, making certain aspects to other planets. And the way we use our mind, to me, is symbolized by the planet Mercury in our chart. So that's how I tie that in. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one one of the things that was funny in some of the later chapters, I mean, she has a whole discussion about his search for like the dates on the starting dates of the age of Aquarius and other stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was funny is that how much young was like a, almost like a typical astrologer or he did some things that were almost like kind of cliche or, or typical of astrologers that they would do like trying to find the dates of the age of Aquarius starting or trying to find like a plausible birth chart for the birth of Jesus, for example, which has been like a, traditional thing that many astrologers take part in who come for, at astrology from like a Christian background. It's like one of the interesting things that once you learn astrology, you're like, well, what did the chart of Jesus look like, for example? Or you start mm -hmm. thinking about like, what if you could find the chart of certain prominent people and then understand their background better based on that chart? So in many ways, he was pretty much like a standard astrologer. He was just highly educated and also was not a slouch like he was pretty focused and whatever he tried to apply himself or study he did so in a on a very high level except actually so he did the study of marriages right and he said okay i've collected data about these people but he doesn't show the data he just says here's my list of you know sun combinations but we don't see the charts we don't get to do any kind of peer review with that and i always thought that was a really weird thing you know what? I did see something about that. I was, when I was doing some research on background information and I, I put that in the notes that he actually, um, recruited four women to collect the data for that study. And that's not covered in this book, is it? Um, and so they went out there and they were the ones that collected the data from these people and then just gave it to Jung. And that's, I think, kind of why earlier I had mentioned, what about time? You know, how much time did he really have to devote to, I'm sure, a lot of the things that he wanted to? And his, so his daughter was one of the four people that collected the data for that study. So maybe but you'd think that in a scientific publishing environment, you know, especially when peer review is already pretty much set in stone as a, mm -hmm. as a method, you would say, here's my findings. And then in the appendix, you can find all of the charts I looked at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know, part of um, that is because he ended up what we end up hearing from that is in the context of his essay and one of his essays on synchronicity, he just reports the results, but he ended up reporting the results just because he ended up feeling like it wasn't scientific and that ultimately mm -hmm. he thought he was influencing the outcome. So he probably never presented any of that because he decided that it was 
pointless to attempt to apply statistics to something like astrology if it's just a form of divination and then went in a completely different direction in terms of his conceptualization of astrology after that point. Wait, are you saying that he preceded Jeffrey Cornelius by 40 years? Yes. I mean, yeah, he's basically- (laughs) The moment of astrology happened with you. Right. Well, I mean, it did. I mean, that was the critical turning point. It seemed like, because that was one of the things that you wrote in your notes is that you were surprised, if if I can say this, in terms of like the development of his thought, or maybe you want to make that point? Oh, sure. Um, So in the first chapter- so at the very beginning of the book, actually, just to go back to the very, we're going to do an Ouroboros now. We went from the end, and now we're going back. Okay, the discussion will, <laughs> so, will not eat itself. <laughs> the discussion will eat itself. So one thing I love is, um, and this was where Liz influenced me as an astrologer, is that um, astrology is not a monolithic entity that was invented at one point and then has, you know, wandered the earth, slightly transforming, and you know. The idea is that every human culture has a kind of astrology. And so, you know, in the Western tradition, yes, there is a tradition and a lineage we can track, but that's not to say that Micronesia doesn't have their own tradition that's completely disconnected from us. And so I appreciate that she also opens this book with that foregrounding to let us know there are multiple varieties of astrology, and now we're going to look at one of them. But just know that there are pluralities here. And so that's a really great thing. And then we get into the first chapter. And I kept going back to the end notes, trying to figure out, you know, here you have Jung's understanding of astrology being presented. And it was, again, for me, flashbacks to when I had the collected works open and I was trying to find every single time he mentions it and collecting them and trying to make sense of it for myself. But there's no timeline here. It's almost as if uh, Jung encountered astrology, something crystallized, and then for the next 44 plus years, he actually didn't really change his ideas. Um, and it was difficult to discern from the footnotes when certain quotes were made and when certain things were published. And it's a, it's a four decade span of time. And I have a problem with that. Just thinking, you know, yeah, you can encounter astrology when you're in the early 19 aughts, you know, 1911, but you've got to imagine by 1952, something's changed in your thought. And so to track a little bit more closely, was there a transformation in his thought over that time? Um, I didn't sense it in that first chapter at all. It just seemed sort of like, well, this was Jung's astrology and there's that. And it's like, but that's four decades. I mean, I know for myself, I'm 20 years in and I've changed a lot even in the last five years, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I just found that a little bit um, awkward. Sure. I, I yeah. mean, and part of that's because, you know, because one of the th- only things that she had at her disposal was just like, here's his library these are the books that he had. So we know that he read those books and therefore was influenced by them. And then she could occasionally look up like the publication date of the book and then try to approximate when he may have picked up the book, or at least the earliest date he could pick up the book based on that. And so that's almost, that's one of the few things that then you can kind of reconstruct his, the development of his thinking of astrology on, in addition to some of those other published statements and works, but that it just would have been very hard to do that with with that because it's such a broad approximation to just attempt to do a chronology about that. But yeah, it, it's like the book is not necessarily outlined. It doesn't outline the development of Young's thought on astrology in a linear fashion. But instead, even though the book is ostensibly about Young, it's almost more like background information that's useful for understanding Young 
and the various philosophies that influenced his thought, like Hermeticism and Gnosticism and Platonism and stuff like that, rather than just a straightforward, like these are all of the sources and a list uh, and the dates, and these are the times when he started doing different things astrologically. Right. And I think that's an excellent way of putting it is when he started doing different things astrologically. If he was getting people even in 1952 to collect data for him, was he technically doing the astrology? I mean, maybe he was so shy about writing about it. We don't have sources for that, but I, I was missing that. I was hoping that maybe having the family give her access to these materials, we'd find, we would find something that would flesh that out a little more clearly of his private yeah. thoughts about what he was looking at or a new development. I mean, um, you know, if we were to write the history of Chris Brennan's astrology, that would, that we would see a trajectory of shifts of things you've incorporated, things you've dropped, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I was missing that in the four decades that Jung was doing it. Sure. Yeah. And I think- Or five decades, actually. I mean, one of the things is that this book, as well as the, the other book, Jung on Astrology, I think lay a broad foundation where now I could see somebody attempting to do some of those more um, specific and, and sort of focused in on certain aspects now of Jung's thoughts and, and perhaps his studies of astrology now that this foundation has been laid. Because up to this point, like a book like this literally didn't exist. This is, this is pretty much the first book of its kind. And in the conclusion or towards the end of the book, she actually, she talks about how a lot, a, a decent portion of the modern biographies of Jung don't even mention his his interest in astrology, or just don't even talk about that as an influence on his thought, and that that's part of the context of writing this book was this very broad um, sort of overview and and demonstration of the extent to which astrology did influence did in fact influence his thought, and uh, I mean at least to the extent that that's the focus, I think she makes the case pretty persuasively. Uh, but at least it, it opens the door for other studies, perhaps, if other people want to take up that work and attempt to go into more detail or, or look at it with a fine-tooth comb. Yeah, and I also, I, I just want to say, I also wonder now about his daughter, Gret, and she had five sons, and um, I would guess that they're still around, and where are they, and what are they doing, and do they have her notes, and her books and maybe there's some of his Jung stuff in there that wasn't mentioned by Dr. Green, and now I'm curious about that. Yeah, I would, I would, I'm curious if there were any interviews with Gret and to to explore more about her work and and her life and some of the things that she ended up doing. Um, yeah, maybe there's some more insight into Jung um, through Gret. Right. Yeah, definitely, because she would have been then one of the first you know generations of. Jungian astrologers, then theoretically, I mean that's actually interesting to think about the fact that mm. you know Liz Green really popularized Jung and the and integrated Jung into astrology in the late twentieth century. But then you know he had a daughter who literally was practicing yeah. astrology uh, a few decades before that already, and what her approach looked like. Right. Um, so one of the last things I just wanted to discuss briefly as we get towards wrapping this up is towards the end, I thought it was interesting. There was this, this sort of tension where she kind of tries to like rebuff one scholar's characterization of Young as a, a quote unquote, a modern esotericist in the conclusion. But I, I mean, honestly, from a lot of the stuff that she demonstrated and talked about Young being involved in, it was almost kind of 
hard or it almost kind of didn't necessarily seem like they were necessarily wrong. And there's an interesting tension in the book, therefore, in on the one hand, demonstrating the extent to which Young was was interested in and incorporated esoteric and magical and astrological trends into his thinking and into his life and into his thought, but then on the other hand, still wanting to see him as a modern psychologist who made important contributions to astrology and to psychology and shouldn't just be written off as an esotericist. And and I'm curious, I feel like people are going to take and interpret this in different directions and, and might use it in order to justify more of a case in some instances that he was more of an esotericist than, I don't know, an, an empiricist or what, than a, a modern scientific thinker or something like that. Um, what what did you guys end up feeling about that? Or, or, or Laura, I mean, how did you feel in terms of did this book change your your understanding of Jung to any major extent, or did it make you think differently about him, or or what sort of impression were you left with? Uh, no, I didn't think any differently of him. Uh, I thought it was very um, eye opening, and I appreciated that. But Jung has long been accused of being a mystic, and I remember the first time I heard that, I thought. Is that supposed to be a bad thing or something? Um, because I consider myself a mystic. Um, my background, I did attend university. I was trained as a scientist. And so I'm both. Do we have to be one or the other? And also, I'm not into labels. I don't know. Jung, I didn't think was into labels. And in my analysis, it was all about not identifying with labels or being put in a box. And and that's why we don't talk about typology in analysis usually. And we didn't. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I just don't see it that way, I guess. Sure. Sure. I guess there's going to be, I guess I was just thinking in terms of different people who might approach this book with different agendas. Like there's going to be People that are already mm, into sure. Jung's thought and are are on board with Jungian, not just Jungian analysis. Well, that I mean, that's a group. The people that are purely on board with Jungian analysis and are not necessarily interested in like astrology or esotericism or other things like that, and how they feel about that aspect of Jung's thought. And then there's, you know, let's say modern psychologists or academics or historians that already adopt a, a dismissive or, or skeptical or antagonistic approach towards Jung and Jungian psychology, which uh, Green cites several biographers, which she says are sort of um, hostile. Yeah. Jung bashing. Right. Yeah. Or, or that are. Jung bashing is like a career thing. <laughs> right. So it's like. Those people probably are going to look at something like this, and this is just going to confirm or maybe reconfirm their opinion about him, um, and their you know give them even further justification to write him off. But then there's probably other people, you know. Obviously, there's astrologers uh, like like the three of us who see this positively because you know astrologers often have a long history of like I don't know trying to point back to important and influential thinkers that have been acknowledged as making important contributions to uh western thought or towards you know history or psychology or science or something and 
in those instances in which they were sympathetic to astrology using that as like you know evidence that like we're not all crazy or that sometimes you know intelligent perfectly intelligent people who make important contributions to a society can think that astrology is a legitimate phenomenon and so on on the one hand there's people like us who who would use this book as further justification for some argument like that. Yeah, I mean I think what's so bad about being called an esotericist, you know, let right. let's break down those labels and fight scientism on its own turf. At that time that that Jung was so shy about outing himself as an astrologer in the astrological community itself, people were this is also going in hand with their allergy to theosophy. They were vehemently opposed to calling themselves a cult. Astrology was not a cult. Astrology was something that was an experiential science, an empirical science that relied on having personal experience with its precepts and rules. And once you had that, you could not go back. And it's actually sort of funny because I feel like in my experience, anyone who has astrological experience to this day cannot unknow what they've experienced yeah. and they become astrologers. So they're not wrong. I think the issue is these definitions that get bantered about and if anything, this book is now a, a tool that we can use saying Jung was plugged into some of the most ancient thought about astral significance in our entire culture, and he happened to take it in these directions. And this is all of the footnotes you need, and here's where you can read more, and there's a massive bibliography that you can look up. And, you know, so I mean, I think it's a beautiful fruit of, you know, what we need in terms of not being the underdog anymore and not being, you know, don't let those people that are going to bash Jung or bash us for being astrologers have that final say. You know, this is a book that actually says, no, you're, you need to do your homework. You need to actually read this and then come back at me. Right. Because previously, maybe somebody could have downplayed or said, oh, you know, Jung only looked at astrology within the context of like the development of Western thought. And it wasn't really a major influence on his thinking or, Maybe it was a minor influence, but it really didn't play a major role in his life or something like that. And with books like this and Young on Astrology, you basically cannot make that argument anymore. They, they have firmly rejected that argument now by presenting very well documented cases that, that show the evidence. Right. And I think, you know, I, I can only estimate because I haven't read volume two, but I did read the 40 page article in Sky and Symbol that was published in 2011, 2012. Um, that completely was enough evidence for me. And I, I, I'm so excited to read volume two now because I feel that that will be not only just reading a book and getting lots of footnotes, but it will actually be an experience. Mm. We will be led through the red book in a way that will change forever how we think of Jung's philosophy and in a sense, or in and his psychology and his contribution. And I, in volume one is almost this, um, getting your palate wet, you know, it's giving you all the background you need. So that when that experience happens, you're locked and loaded, you know, and yeah, I'm really excited to see what the next episode of this discussion will be. Yeah, I'm excited as well uh, to dive into it and to dive into the Red Book and some of the scholarship surrounding it at the same time, because uh, this is, you know, this is, and this is like the third, this is supposed to be the third of a trilogy of episodes on Young. Uh, the first one was with Saffron Rossi talking about the book Young on Astrology, which is their collection of excerpts from Young's surviving writings on astrology. The second one was with Kiran LeGrice about Young's views on the mechanism underlying astrology and the development of his theory of synchronicity. And then this was the final one, which is talking about Young's 
um, sources that he drew on and his influences uh, from the astrological tradition, which it turned out were partially modern but also ancient. Because like any good academic, Young basically did a, a literature review and studied the entirety of, of everything he could get his hands on in terms of their earlier astrological and philosophical and esoteric traditions, and then created a synthesis of all of that in his personal philosophy and his psychology. So to me, I'm, I'm excited about all of this because it basically shows that somebody in the early 20th century had already linked the, the ancient and the modern astrological traditions, and it partially demonstrates that the development of modern psychological astrology did not, in fact, occur completely in isolation of the earlier astrological traditions, but in fact, one of its founders was deeply engaged in the study of those early traditions from the start. And although some of the later astrologers that adopted Jung's work have not been familiar with those those trends, um, curiously, in this weird fashion, one of the leading astrologers who was and did successfully incorporate Jung's work, his psychological work, into the modern astrological tradition, Liz Green, sort of completed the thread by eventually writing this book and showing how Jung was influenced by the contemporary and ancient astrological traditions. So there, there's this weird piece of like closure that this book brings yeah. to all of that sort of historical story over the past century of the history of astrology. That's a very important important thing. Definitely. All right. Well, um, thank you both. Like, Really, I appreciate you both doing this discussion with me and, and reading um, this book over the course of the past week. I really appreciate it. It was kind of an intimidating uh, episode to prepare for and to try to, to discuss, but I'm happy with how much ground we were able to cover. And I'm hoping that you know, over the course of the next few months or whatever, I'd like to have a group of all of us like get together and have kind of a book club to read volume two uh, of Liz Green's work, the ast titled "The Astrological World of Young's Liber Novus: uh, Diamonds, Gods, and the Planetary Journey," and to, like read that together with the Red Book. Yeah, and and to kind of recognize and and view it as an important turning point in terms of the history of astrology and in terms of scholarship on the history of astrology in terms of the the foundations of of modern astrology and what Jung ended up contributing to the development of astrology over the past century and whatever role the red book uh, played in that. So yeah, maybe we can all read it together and then discuss it or do a follow-up episode at some point. That'd be great. Yeah, I would love that. All right, awesome. And all right. So, where can people find out more information? Um, so, I just wanted to reiterate. So, your where can what's the URL for your podcast, Laura? It is speakingofyoung.com, J-U-N-G. And I'm actually going to be doing an episode about the Red Book with Tom and Mary Ellen Lavin, who were at the launch, the book party launch in New York City in 2009. For it, and I attended their workshop. They did a two night workshop on the Red Book. This was back in, they did it right after, so in the beginning of 2010. So I haven't actually read the book, Red Book since then. So I would love to reread it uh, along with Dr. Green's uh, volume two and you know, share th thoughts and notes with you about it. And, um, do another episode. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'll, I look forward to hearing that episode. And, and yeah, because 
Although the point I was making earlier is just Jung provides, he's a good dual example for both sides of the tradition. He's a good example, and, and Liz mm-hmm. Green has demonstrated in this book the reason why modern astrologers should study older forms of astrology and the reason why traditional astrologers should study modern forms of astrology because Jung becomes a doorway uh, to both sides, basically, in this really interesting way. Um, and speaking of that, so that's the work that you're engaged in right now as well, right, Jen? And you've been ramping up efforts. I think you're doing a poll right now to see what the next work is that you you translate, right? Yes, I've been translating Elizabeth Ebertine, but earlier in our conversation today, uh, the astrologer Oscar Schmitz came up and his book, The Spirit of Astrology, was published first in 1922 and became one of the main vectors for the popularization of astrology during the Weimar Republic mostly because from the very beginning of it, he says, this isn't a textbook, it's a travelogue. And I really love how he frames that because he has that sort of debutante feeling about him, sort of like, I'm just going to take you on a bit of a tour of astrology land and show you this, show you that. So um, I've been working with Elsbeth now for a year and a half, and I'm, I'm looking forward to my patrons hopefully choosing Oscar just so that I can get a bit of a different flavor in the mix um, for a minute and then return back to Elsbeth after that. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, and Oscar's work is second half of that book. He talks about astrological psychology. So that's kind of another neat thing to maybe add to the current conversation if we were able to read what Oscar had to say. Yeah, definitely. In terms of understanding the the origins and the development of modern astrology over, over the course of the past century and the the integration of you know psychology as as a pretty new discipline into astrology during during that time. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. All right. And people can find out information about that primarily probably on your website, right? Yeah. So no one can ever spell my last name right. So I actually have a new URL, uh, celestialspark.com and or gensart.com. Okay, awesome. Celestialspark.com. That's a great domain. Thanks. All right. All right. Well, thank you again both for for joining me today. Uh, Thanks. And, you know, just really... Uh, mad props and credit to Liz Green for for pulling this off. This is an important, yes, really important piece of scholarship. It's an important point in the history of astrology. It's important from the perspective of the thing we started this discussion with about astrologers going into academia and why that's important and demonstrating that they can do not just good scholarship, but that they can bring a unique and valuable perspective that is missing in academia currently by by making that effort and that very important things can come out of it i think this book demonstrates that more than more than any other astrologer who's made that tra- tra- transition so far i feel like this this book demonstrates that i don't know if that's going too far jen i don't know <laughs> this 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 throws down the gauntlet for sure we all have to rise to a new level this sets a new level for sure okay awesome well i think that's a, a great point to end on then so so thanks both of you for joining me Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. All right. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. 